so I'm going to start us off with something that's been really pissing me off. What? So there is someone either that's visiting someone at my apartment complex or possibly living at my apartment complex that's been eating a lot of chicken wings. Okay. So this, you know, <laughs> shouldn't be okay. a huge, shouldn't be a huge issue. However, they are throwing the bones outside. So they're uh. on the sidewalks, they're in the grass, like, you know, where everyone takes their dogs out. So um, for those who don't know, because I know you give bones to dogs, but uh, you cannot give bird bones to dogs because they're hollow. So basically, if your dog swallows a piece of that bone, it can stab them on the inside and kill them. So I have been having to force bones out of Charlie's mouth and like, look at the ground for fucking chicken wings. Like literally, who does that? Bitch, just go boneless. But like, this has happened for months. Like, this is not a new thing. Like, it keeps happening. And I'm like, use a fucking trash can. But, like, I don't understand what's going on. Do you think someone's, like, trying to kill the dogs? I, maybe. But literally, as a dog owner, that and people not using leashes, I think so far the two things that I'm just like, hello, I don't get it. I Oh my god, a hundred percent. So... Anyway, a really negative thing to start off on, but it happened like 30 minutes ago, and I was like, come on. But hey, everyone, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I promise I'm going to be in a better mood (laughs) (laughs) this episode. I just had to get that off of my chest because, you know, like, I don't get it. But what I do get is how amazing our Patreon is. Um, (laughs) So. Thanks. So you guys have heard us talk about it a lot, but those um, Patreon supporters we have are totally the reason we're still able to do this podcast. So if you haven't checked it out, we have so many episodes up on Patreon for Patreon only. We have our murder minis. We're up to 34 of them. Um, Maybe like 35. I'm not sure. It's in the 30s. Uh, Yeah, something like that. We have a lot of murder minis and those range from like 20 minute episodes to hour long episodes it just depends on what cases we pick and then we also have our new series bottle talk which is strictly all the wine information you could possibly want we have like a segment series within that that is called what the hell is a and we talk about you know what are different wines what are they and all kinds of other things but those are for our patreon members only so hop on over Go support us. You can check those out, as well as a lot of other things, depending on what tier you're on. Direct an episode, get an official blood and wine sticker, get a letter from us. I mean, all the really fun stuff. Yes. And also, while you're doing that, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, basically anywhere you find podcasts, you can find us. We're there. So... This episode is one when Ty told me the topic, I didn't realize it was going to hit as close to home as it ended up hitting. Yeah. Do you feel the same way with the case you yeah. picked? Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely did not realize how much the case I picked and this topic in general would hit close to home. But the topic we're doing today is camp murders. Yes. And we were talking about it and camping was something that we grew up with a lot And we did it all the time. As adults, I don't feel like this is something we've ventured to do in years and years, or at least I know I haven't. But as a kid, 
camping was like the thing and it wasn't it was never scary but now i would be scared of it after all of yeah. this <laughs> now i'm convinced there's serial killers behind every tree in the forest that's why it's so dark to hide the serial killers exactly so i was actually a boy scout for god like 15 years that's 10 years i don't know some amount of time and Brittany, you were actually in girl scouts so. i was yeah part of the uh, reason camping was totally a thing oh yeah I also was thinking, like, you know, there's so many movies, uh, like Friday the 13th or uh, the current season of American Horror Story, yeah. that are, like, camp murders. So I was like, ooh, let's do it. Let's do it. And we did. And just prep yourselves. Yes. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the wines. Definitely going to be necessary. Necessary? Um, definitely necessary for uh, today's topic, for sure, and the cases. Oh, yes. The wine that I'm drinking today is the 2016 Irony Cabernet Sauvignon from California. And if y'all haven't guessed by now, I very much have a cold, so sorry for that. Uh, I will read you the tasting notes. We will see if I'm able to actually taste them. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> It's like Ray E. Ain on your wedding day. Yeah. Um, so this wine in particular, several important critics have rated it very highly. Wine enthusiasts gave it a 91. It's also won a bunch of different gold medals from all these different wine competitions. It is aged in a combination of French and American oak barrels, and it's from the northern coast of California, so... It opens with these enticing aromas of boysenberry, black cherry, and cassis. Mm. Uh, it also has a hint of cedar notes. Oh, that sounds so good. You're like reading notes of my favorite kinds of cabs. Yeah. Um, it is medium bodied and the flavors, it has these dark berry mixed with layers of chocolate covered black cherries, which I don't know how they could tell it's chocolate-covered cherries rather than chocolate and cherries, but okay. Oh no, uh, and definitely chocolate-covered. Yes. Makes me I want mean, some right now, to be honest. I think chocolate-covered fruit is gross. Oh no, it's so good! Chocolate-covered, like, orange slices? Oh No, no thank you. <laughs> um, and it also has notes of baking spice. It has a balanced profile with these bold, almost dusty tannins. And it makes it a perfect match for roast beef tenderloin, penne pasta with Italian sausage, or even chocolate cake. I definitely haven't eaten dinner yet tonight, which is probably a lapse in judgment, but all of this is sounding really good right now. Like all the oh, yeah. foods you just described. I'm like, oh, can, I, can I have some pasta with Italian sausage like right now? I have neither of those things. Or even marinara. I have pasta. Sad day. I know. Sad day. I had like a salad for lunch. It was good. It was not pasta. Well, on that note, I'm going to get into this bottle. Also, this one is not a screw cap. It is a cork. And I don't think I mentioned how much it was. It was like 11 bucks oh, at the corner store. So probably like eight at a regular store. Anywhere else. Yeah. Corner store is yeah. always like a market up. But you know what? Desperate yeah. times call for corner, store, corner stores. And I've done it. Yes. Agreed. Remember how many times you used to get wine from Walgreens? So much. So often. <laughs> it was easier to walk to than anything else. Not a very loud That pop. was a kind of puny pop there. But I'm excited to see the color of this cab. 
Did did you say it's medium or full bodied? It said medium bodied. Okay. It looks really dark though. Yeah, it's a pretty dark purple and I I don't know why I'm trying to smell it. I can't smell anything <laughs> right now. It smells like Wine. my nose. Okay. Well, Tell me about what yours is, because I need this wine for the case, and because it's going to make me feel better. <laughs> I was literally about to be like, what does it taste like? Forgetting that I need to tell you about my wine, which is it's in a really cool bottle, and I've been Ooh. I've been eyeing this one at Trader Joe's forever. So basically, it's like you take a regular wine bottle and like make it short and fat, but it's still yep. the same size. This is the 2018 Rogerio de Bardo... Susmanello red wine from Italy. Sorry if I said all of that wrong. Or you're okay. welcome if I said it all right. Um, <laughs> so it's an Italian red wine and it's $10 at Trader Joe's. I'm sure if you've been to Trader Joe's and it has this one, you know which one I'm talking about because it's the short fat wine bottle. Um, it's from Southern Italy and the grape, I probably said that wrong when I said it earlier because it has, it's S-U-S-U- Manello, so Susa Manello. It's a variety of red wine grapes from the heel of Italy. So if you think of Italy as a boot, it's from the heel area. And it's an ancient grape variety that is found only in the Italian region of Apulia. It's got a deep ruby red color, medium bodied, with a pretty restrained profile that's mostly notes of cherry on the palate with a cinnamon spice finish. So um, this one sounds really good. And it's good, like all Italian wines are, with beef, pasta, lamb, you know, classic Italian dishes. Um, All the things. All the things. Of course, I couldn't find a ton about this, but I decided that is enough. And I will just taste it and see what I think for myself. And this one is a cork as well. So I am... um, Getting my noisy cork thing in there. My God, it's real squeaky today. It is. <laughs> uh, normally, y'all can't hear my uh, thing, but this is just, uh, literally, I need a new one so bad. This is my, like, or this cork's really just in here. But this is my one with, like, the arms, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to get a new foil cutter. At this point, I basically just have to tear off the foil. Yeah. Oh. That was a struggle. That also sounded like a jug. It did sound different, this bottle. It's probably because it's short and fat. This feels so awkward holding it. It's like I'm pouring a giant glass of, like, liquor. (laughs) Ooh, that looks good. It smells like fruit, like cherries and plum and a little bit of blackberries. Nice. Which, with it being an Italian wine, probably means it's going to taste really earthy. Oh, yeah, maybe. Although what I found said it tastes like cherries and cinnamon, which sounds like mulled wine to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, there's only one way to find out. Yes, let's cheers and chug. Cheers and chug. (laughs) That was a really delicate cheers on my end because uh, this bottle is like really thick and I was scared to hit the glass too hard. (laughs) Okay, now I'm going to taste it. So I'm definitely tasting like these baking spices and cinnamon in this one. And notes of cherry, it does still need to open up a little bit more. I've noticed, especially with earthy red wines, they do need that time to open up and breathe before you can really taste everything. But I will say 
This is a solid Italian wine for 10 bucks at Trader Joe's. Um, honestly, Trader Joe's rarely disappoints me. Their wine selection's so good. I mean, obviously you guys know this considering it's where we go for over half of our wines. True. Like, literally, we just need to call them and be like, yo, Joe, um, I'm assuming, you know. Um, Mr. Joe. Would you like to trade some promotion for some wine? And he'll be like, that's a great idea and all, but we literally, everyone already knows who we are because we're amazing. And I'd be like, I know, Joe, but I'm just saying. No, just kidding. Uh, I freaking love Trader Joe's. I wouldn't be able to live without it. And this wine, if you find it, go pick it up. This Susumanello grape is it's different. It's used a lot in blends. And to be honest, from what I could find, I think this wine is mostly just this grape, but there may be others mixed in as well. So you know how a lot of it, um, European wines, it's multiple grapes? Yeah. That's probably what this is, but I really don't know. How's yours uh, from what you could taste? Um, from what I can tell, it's a very smooth cab. I, I honestly can't tell much flavor right now, but it's good. It doesn't taste bad. Well, and honestly, if it were a bad wine, you'd be able to tell it's a bad wine. Exactly. Um, not too, too acidic, smooth. Um, I'm not really sure what they mean by, um, dusty tannins. I don't know what that means either. Like old tannins? What's an old I, tannin? I don't know. A 90 year old tannin. <laughs> that's not old age is a number 90 is pretty old it is it is pretty old if, if you're 90 you're old and if you're 90 but... and you're listening you're a fucking badass and i want to meet you agreed <laughs> um okay you know what i just noticed i know we talk about them all the time but it's because they're amazing and if you're in comfort you need to go but i'm using my bending branch winery glass and you're totally wearing your shirt i am I also, um, a few weeks ago when we went to New Orleans, I flew out of San Antonio because cheap flights, but they had a wine bar in the terminal and Bending Branch was their like featured partner. And I still cannot believe you didn't take a photo. Like, I, yeah. It was such a mess on your part. I know. I was too busy having my 10 a.m. Starbucks and wine. Which is totally what you do at the airport. Airports are, like you've said, and like the meme says, and like we all say, there's no such thing as time as an airport, except the time you need to be at your gate and on your plane. That is one of the times associated with airports. But if it's 7 a.m. and you want a beer, get yourself a damn beer if they're open. They usually are. Yeah. Well, we have our wine. We have our topic. I'm going to jump into my case. Yeah, from the couple little tidbits that you already spoiled for me, let's be honest, you did tell me a little bit because of the the connections or whatever. Um, I'm really interested in hearing your case. Not that I'm not always interested. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I know, I'm like, wow. <laughs> Some weeks, I just literally want to get to mine, and I really don't care what you have to say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, if that takes two, or that makes two of us, whatever the phrase is. <laughs> that takes two. It takes two. Yeah. Remember that movie with Mary-Kate and Ashley? No. It's, no. It's so good. It's so good. It has Kirstie Alley in it. Anyway, I they they're so, at camp. It's related, okay, to the topic. It's totally related. Oh. They find each other in camp. Just like Are you sure you're not thinking of like the parent trap? No, I'm not thinking of the parent trap, but I was about to say just like the parent trap. But no, it's they're at camp and it's the same scenario. They find out they have a twin. 
Oh, well, I mean, listen, I just realized uh, in this conversation that I get Mary-Kate and Ashley and Wishbone mixed up, and I'm not sure which one, I'm not sure that they're not the same thing. I'm sorry, Wishbone with the dog? Yeah, I'm sure Mary-Kate and Ashley also had a dog. Yeah, but the dog wasn't the main character, they were. I don't really understand how you've gotten those confused. Although, they had their detective series, which... Honestly, as a kid, it was probably one of the first things that introduced me into, like, investigation. True crime. <laughs> it all started with Mary-Kate and Ashley. Oh, God. Well, okay. I mean, you have to start somewhere, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. But, wow, in, in your memoir, your intro to true crime was Mary-Kate and Ashley. It's literally going to be like me talking about one of the opening scenes to their shows and me being like, whoa! But also, you know, we've talked about the fact that we started reading Stephen King at a very early age. Although that's less true crime and more horror. But we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. And let's also make it clear. Mary-Kate Ashley is not true crime. Oh, no. (laughs) It's not. I also don't even know if it's like crime crime or if it's like... (laughs) Susie got the cookies stolen from the bake store. Yeah, it's more like Harriet Harriet the Spy, which I was also obsessed with. Harriet the Spy. You had like her journal and everything, didn't you? Oh, I did. I I wanted to be her. Y'all, I was a really cool kid. Don't even say otherwise, Tyler. I will say (laughs) one last thing uh, to make you feel old is... Or I guess to make me feel young, however way you put it. But the, uh, the, I guess, spy in my childhood, was Kim Possible. Yeah, I never really watched that, but she had that, like, rat thing, right? She did. She Her friend had, like, a rat, yes. <laughs> That's about the extent of my knowledge on the fact. But, um, okay, Fair. now that we have revisited our childhoods, let's visit your case. Okay, so my case is the 2011 Norway Attacks. And for those of y'all that have been listening for a while, y'all know that I studied abroad in Norway from 2013 to 2014. And this was very impactful. I mean, just at base level, Norway's not a huge country. It's like 5 million people or so. and Which is like the size of the Dallas Metro or Houston. Yeah, like just to but give... an entire country. Exactly. And... It doesn't have disasters like other bigger countries have. Like, there are, like, the disasters it has are memorable, not only because there's a lot of time in between them. I think the biggest thing to happen in Norway before this was a ferry caught fire in the 90s. And before that, in the 80s, there was an oil tanker that blew up. But. Oh. So not only are these disasters notable because of the time in between them, but also pretty much everyone in the country knows someone who was affected by them or themselves were affected. Yeah. And in this case, this happened uh, two years before I came to Norway. I know someone that I was in college with who survived this. Oh my god, so this was like in 2011? 2010? Yeah, I'm- it was 2011. 2011. When the attacks happened. That is recent. We don't. Yeah. We don't usually do cases this recent. And, um, yeah. You, what you had told me was how close it it happened to when you were there. Um, but I didn't realize you had a classmate who survived it. So that that hits very close to home. 
It does. It's kind of one of the reasons why I not really wanted to do this one, but then with this topic, I was like, I mean, that's the perfect case. And honestly, I think there's not that many people who are really aware of what happened. I don't know this story. I don't know this case at all. Well, and that's, I mean, that's what we do is we're, we get the awareness out there and I'm like, okay, it's time for y'all bitches to be aware. Be aware of what happened in Norway. All right. So tell us. So uh, the sources I used for this were BBC, the article Norway Massacre. We could hear the gunshots getting closer. Mm, No, I really hate that title. Uh, There's a, there's a couple titles that are really hard here. Uh, For that article, I couldn't find an author. I used Encyclopedia Britannica, The Oslo and Utoya Attacks of 2011 by Michael Ray, an article from GQ titled, Is He Coming? Is He? Oh God, I Think He Is, which is a direct quote from a survivor. Um, And that was written by Sean Flynn. I used the Wikipedia page for the 2011 Norway Attacks, And then also National Geographic has this show, Seconds from Disaster. I I think you've talked about it before. Yeah, I had a case. I cannot tell you what episode it was. Was it the airplane one? Yeah, it was where the airplanes collided. Yeah. uh, That I first saw from Seconds from Disaster. And they did a special episode titled Norway Massacre. I was there. And I will say... Obviously, yours has some triggers for shootings, etc. Um, just wanted to point that out with everything that's happening in our world right now. I think it's important to bring yes. that up. Yes, it is. Well, and I think because of the topic being camp murders, I, I think both of us have trigger warning for children. Yes. So on July 22nd of 2011, a white Volkswagen van slips past this no-entry sign into a plaza below this 17-story building in Oslo, Norway. Which, by the way, if y'all didn't know, Oslo's the capital. This building that the van is in front of is known as H-Block, and it's part of the government complex in central Oslo. It houses a bunch of different government agencies, as well as the prime minister's office on the top floor. The driver parked the van near the main entrance and lit a fuse that connected into the back of the van to a mixture of fertilizer, diesel, and aluminum that altogether weighed about a ton. The driver then calmly walks three blocks away towards a silver Fiat getaway car, and this is all recorded on surveillance cameras. I mean, it's a government building. All this is seen. He's wearing body armor, and he's carrying a pistol. And this man is Anders Breivik. This is giving me way too many Oklahoma City bombing vibes. Like, obviously that van was a bomb. Yeah. I mean, fertilizer, all the things. And he lit it. And he get away. Yep. Nope. Too much. And it's the same type of bomb. Yeah, it's the fertilizer bomb. So just a few minutes later at 3.26 p.m., an explosion rocks downtown Oslo. It shatters windows and damages buildings all over the city. Eight people are killed and dozens are injured. But it was actually not as bad as it could have been. If the bombing had happened at another time of year, the casualty list would have been a lot higher. Were people out of town? Well, in Norway, 
the end of July is kind of like vacation time. Oh. It's basically like an unofficial holiday. Like summer break, so, essentially? Yeah. So most public offices were empty that afternoon. Thank most God. Most people were not there. The police determined that the explosion had obviously happened from a car bomb. And it, like Brittany said, drew parallels to the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995. Oh, that's right. Because this was in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I I hate that there are so many instances that can draw parallels with the Oklahoma City bombing and how the OKC yeah. bombing is interwoven into so many things. It's just, it's really crazy. Oh, it's horrifying. And as a side note for here, I knew of this case, obviously, when I lived there, but I mostly knew of the second half. I didn't necessarily know where this bomb had been or like what that was. I looked it up probably a couple months into my time in Norway and realized I walked past that all the time. I was like, oh, that's the area where it happened. Wow. Yeah. My my school was uh, downtown. That's where they have the law school. When I worked, I worked in Oklahoma City like less than 10 years after it happened. And so the memorial was a block away. So like where it all happened was right by where I was. So obviously I talked to coworkers that had worked there and just, I mean, it was one of those things. Yeah, it happens, you know, when something happens in the past, um, it's like you're, you have this like you're glad it's not happening right now. But walking in a place where some type of tragedy to this extent has happened, it's very eerie. Yeah. And just being around that place on a day-to-day basis, you get used to it, but you never forget. Yeah. I mean, you get used to walking by the building, but you always, in the back of your head, know those little pockmarks in the concrete, that was shrapnel. But, um, so after this bomb goes off, the Norwegian military cordoned off basically all of downtown Oslo. They were scared that there'd be more detonations and more bombs. So officials were telling everyone to stay home, get like, go home, stay with your family. The prime minister was not harmed by the explosion because he actually was at home preparing a speech that he was going to be giving to a youth summer camp the next day on the island of Utoya. So Utoya is this small island, like 26 acres small. Tiny. Um, and it's it, it's tiny. And it's in a fjord about 24 miles northwest of the city center of Oslo. The island is owned by the Workers' Youth League, which is a youth group that's associated with the Labour Party, which is the left wing in Norwegian politics. And every year they hold a summer camp there. On July 22nd, the camp was hosting about 650 people, and the vast majority of them are children. So I'm going to take this one moment before you get into the scary stuff I know is coming to just, like, tell you that that time I visited you in Norway, I think is one of my favorite memories of the two of us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think about it, and there were funny moments. I mean, I guess it's funny now, but like when I got a kidney stone, and there was the really hot French guy that I really wanted to be with, and I couldn't, obviously, 
because I couldn't even go to the party because I was like, I was like, no, it's my period. And you're like, I think it's a kidney stone. And I'm like, no, not me. You're like, I've never had one. And I'm like, well, everything you're describing (laughs) coming from someone who has them on the reg, I'm just going to put my kidney stone pills next to you. Just let me know what you think. Let me know if you need one. Um, It just like, but aside from that part of it, Venturing around uh, the city, going Almost to... Almost getting hit by a bus on a bike. <laughs> yeah, you know, pay attention to those road directions uh, when you're in countries who drive on the other side. Um, but, like, visiting the opera house um, and, I, I don't know, just everything. Like, you getting to show me around Oslo. I, it was just so cool. And I so, this is a weird connection, but when you were describing the camp and the island, I was thinking of like that lake we went to and the pictures we took by the water that were so pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, were you there when we had like the picnic with the other students? No, I think you did that a couple days before I arrived. Cause we had like okay. the get together at the house with all the students and then, yes, 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 yes. then a couple parties. We definitely okay. went to, wasn't that like a club or whatever, like on site? The pub that I volunteered at. That's the one you volunteered at? The one we went to the party yeah. at? Yeah, that was the one I worked at. I didn't realize that. I always pictured you worked in this pub, like downtown. Sorry, no. <laughs> that memory of yours that I had put in my head was a lot cooler. <laughs> just kidding. It's still, it, it was. It's still really cool. But no, I just, before we get into like, I I know we're doing camp murder, so I know something yeah. is coming. But I just wanted you to know, and you know, but that's one of my favorite memories. Yeah. like it, I mean, it absolutely is one of my favorite. And Oslo is my favorite city in the world I've ever been to. I would love to go back at some point and actually explore outside of Oslo more in Norway and like go to like visit Norway again, go to Finland, um, go to Sweden, and just... Everything that's around there, because, yeah, it'd be so cool. Ah, uh, yes. I I want to go back so bad. Literally, I will travel to a city that's an hour away and have a fantastic time. That's how much I love traveling. Um, but obviously, <laughs> I love, like, bigger travel trips, too. But just, if the word travel is associated at all, I'm like, yep, let's do it. Let's let's go to Gaiman, Oklahoma, all for it. Ew. No, let's not. That's no, that's the travel where I put a hard stop. <laughs> I've never been there. Anywhere I haven't been is always an opportunity. I mean, have you been to a closed down Walmart? It's basically the same thing. <laughs> Alright, well, get back into your case. Yeah, that was a nice little reprieve, but here we go. So about an hour and a half after the bombing, Anders Breivik who is dressed in a police uniform and is presenting himself as Martin Nilsson from the Oslo Police Department, boarded a ferry that was taking him to the island of Utoya. When Brevik arrived on the island, he, you know, says he's this police officer and he's just doing a routine check following the bombing in Oslo, which makes sense. The bombing was, uh, you know, obviously targeting the government prime minister. This is a political party youth camp. Okay, that's, that checks out. And one he's about to be at, like, the next day, right? Or this day. Yeah. The, the following day, yeah. He's supposed to be there on the 23rd. And earlier this day, the former prime minister, who was the first female prime minister of Norway, had given a speech. And spoken to all the kids. Oh, so she had been there. Yeah. She had been there and left the camp, I think, just a couple hours before the bombing. Jeez. 
So he meets Monica Bosai, who is the camp leader and the island hostess. And she most likely became suspicious about what he said, or maybe the fact that he's alone. It's not known why. But she called Trond Bernstead, who's the security officer on the island. But it's not known necessarily why she called, because as soon as both of them got near Brevik, he shot and killed them. Both of them? Both of them. Brevik then walked into the main camp and into the cafeteria building, which is like the main area. And that's where a lot of the kids are. There'd been a meeting uh, just a little bit earlier where the camp like leaders were telling the students about the bombing. So there's kids just hanging out. There's kids watching the news. Some kids on the phone with their families. And he walks in. He's this cop. And he signals to them and asks them to gather around before he pulls out his guns and ammunition and just starts firing. <gasps> so Lisa Husby, who is a 17-year-old camper, she had just gotten off the phone with her mom. Uh, her mom had been like, you know, come back to Oslo, leave camp early. And she was telling her mom, like, no, I'm safe. There's no need to worry. I'm like in probably one of the safest places in the country. And I'm miles away from the capital. I hate this so much because I, if I were her, would absolutely have said the same thing. You know, yeah. you know, like, I'm not even there. Like, I know this camp is associated with the government, but like, that was a building downtown in Oslo. I'm at camp. Like, we're fine. It's like when there's other disasters that happen, you know, a city over or, you know, further away where you're like, oh, that's, you know, that's tragic. That's scary. I I'm still, I'm safe here. Well, and honestly, um, you know, as camp kids, we can attest to the fact that camp feels safe. You feel yeah. very safe in the company of your group, the leaders, like everything about it is set up to be safe for the children. And that is one of the reasons why parents are okay with letting their kids go to camp. Their kids are in a safe space. And so honestly, that's why our topic I think is so difficult because we've talked multiple times about, you know, those safe spaces that turn out to not be safe and how difficult that can be just on your psyche, in general, the way you view places, when a place that was safe becomes dangerous. Yeah, it's the most terrifying thing. And it, it covers so many topics, whether yeah. it's your own home, your camp, your workplace, you know, these places that you feel safe, you feel you, you don't even have to second guess the dangers outside, and then suddenly you do. Yeah, and it's this unfortunate thing that goes to show that even safe spaces can be unsafe at some point in time. Like, yeah. not trying to bring, like, the, the dread down, but just the reality that things happen everywhere and you can never predict them. And honestly, don't live your life trying to. Like, be safe, like, no. be smart, but don't live your life in fear. Exactly. So Lisa is with a group of few dozen people. They're in the forest, kind of near the cafeteria building. And all of a sudden, she begins hearing what she thinks are fireworks. And at first, they're, you know, stand next to their tents and they're confused. Like, what? And they're also like, this is so fucked up. Who would pull this prank after what happened in the city today? Who's going to be launching fireworks? She said, I don't think they understood what was going on. A lot of people who actually saw what happened were fleeing, but this group were sheltered and they couldn't see what was happening. So they were just standing there not knowing what to do. But 
they soon realized what was happening, and Lisa didn't know what to do. She said, this island is very small. You can walk across it in 10 minutes. It's a lot of cliffs and trees everywhere. At the time, I didn't even think that I could get off the island by swimming. I didn't even think that I was on an island. I just thought, I have to run and hide. To me, one of the most horrifying things is the geography of the of the fact that this camp is on an island right. that makes it feel safe suddenly turns it into like a death trap. Yeah. Because it's July, but the water is cold. It's ice cold in this fjord. And they're still, I think, a half kilometer from the shore. So even if it was perfectly fine water, that's still a heavy swim. It is. And trapped was the exact word that was coming into my mind. It's like, yeah, what was once safe is now unsafe. It's a trap. They can't get out. They can only hide. And that is scary. To know that your only way of survival is finding the best hiding spot. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what what do you do because you can't really hide in your tent that's not safe that's cloth clearly the cafeteria building isn't safe you're literally using your skills of hide and seek for your entire life for like the ultimate hide and seek i know that's dark but it's legit true yeah so brevik was first shooting people on the island after he shot up the main building the cafeteria He just started wandering around shooting anyone he saw. Jesus. And then he started shooting people who were trying to escape by swimming across the lake. No. Like he just took aim at them? Yeah. I mean, there are people who are in the open water trying to escape, trying their best, and he is just shooting them. And while he's shooting these kids swimming away, I mean, he's still also shooting on the island. And Survivor is described as just this scene of terror. Yeah. And described how several people who were wounded pretended to be dead, but Brevik would walk past people he already shot and shoot him again. That, oh my god, because that is definitely one of the tactics that you take in a shooting. I mean, that's, again, this is so fucking dark, but you pretend to be dead, you don't move, and hope and pray that the shooter doesn't do exactly what he's doing and just shoot aimlessly. Well, and again, one thing I want to really reiterate is these are teenagers. Yeah. This is 600 kids on this island. Two of the adults are dead. I think a couple others are dead, but it's basically these kids out there on their own. One of these survivors was 10. Oh my God. What's their age range? It's basically 10 to 18. And Brevik is also using his disguise as a police officer to lure victims to him, saying he's going to rescue them, saying, like, there's a shooter on the island, come to me. Like, I'm a, I'm a cop. And then shooting the kids. That is disgusting. I mean, the fact that, uh, just the fact alone that he's dressed up as law enforcement it, that, to me, just takes it way too far because law enforcement is supposed to be someone you can trust. And that's what these kids know. And my God, he just, he used that to his advantage. And that is sick. All the kids that had not seen who the shooter was, they see a cop. Exactly. 
they see a police officer who's there and they're like, oh my God, okay, I'm safe. Yeah, like, oh, thank God, like, we're okay now, this craziness has happened, but the cops are here. What a fucking dirtbag. What a piece of shit. And then also, the kids that did see him that are hiding, what about when the actual cops get there? They're not going to know. Who's who? Are are these just more shooters? Is this just the rest of his people coming here to kill us? This is so messed up. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And the documentary on National Geographic, the Seconds from Disaster episode, there's a lot of survivors that are interviewed in it. And to hear them talking about it, it's horrifying. I mean, there were people talking about how they were hiding in different areas with a bunch of other kids and then someone's phone would go off because most of these kids are texting their parents letting them know what's going on like holy shit send help i don't know so some people are getting calls that are giving away where they're hiding and brevik is hearing it and shooting so i'm just gonna interject for a quick sec and say that it's been um a long time since we've done a survivor episode but you said like survivor multiple times and i'm like yeah i'm gonna need something like that after this one so agreed i kind of want to like call like a whoever wins this we're gonna do survivor i mean we'll we'll see at the end but i'm just gonna say i think that's gonna be necessary i 100 <laughs> percent agree it's been a hot minute since we've done a survivor episode and and it is needed it's needed this is already whoa Like we said at the beginning, this topic brought more to the forefront than we thought it would. Like, yeah, I we talked about camp murders after talking about American Horror Story, and it just kind of happened. But these are well, I think you hit, yeah, and I think the biggest thing is you hit the nail on the hammer. No, what on the head? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) whatever the phrase is. Um, When you said the biggest thing about this is takes a place that is so innocent and a place you recognize as safe yeah. and flips that on its head. Totally. And I think I think that's something I definitely didn't think about when I picked the topic. I didn't either when I was uh, researching it. For a lot of kids, right now, their safe space is a bathroom or under a bush because the camp's not their safe space anymore. Right. It's somewhere within that space that, again, like... The hide-and-seek skills seriously coming about. And Lisa had gathered the group she was with. They ran through the forest and ran into a cabin that had previously been, like, the medical place, medical office Yeah, for the camp. And in total, 47 students, including Lisa, barricade themselves into this tiny-ass cabin, and they're hiding as best they can. Lisa and the other students heard... Brevik tried to open the door, and when he couldn't open it, he fired two shots through the window before walking off. The 47 of them would spend more than four hours in that cabin. I mean, I get it. No one wants to leave. No one wants to be the first person to go check it out, see if the coast is clear. No. And even, you know, like I mentioned earlier, even when the actual police officers do arrive... Oh, fuck no, I'm not opening that door. Like, who knows their actual police at this point? No one. Yeah. No, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna need you to get someone who I trust, an adult I trust, to tell me, hey, these are the actual police, before I'm opening this door. And this case also is giving me terrifying flashbacks to 
uh, I don't know, 20 episodes ago when I covered the Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in Florida. Yeah. Children should just never have to face this kind of violence or even be aware of it. No, they really shouldn't. It, I mean, and we've talked about this and there's no need for us to go on this tangent again, but the fact that shooter drills are a thing just like hurts my heart. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm glad they're there so kids can be prepared, but I hate that it's something we have to prepare for like a natural disaster. Yeah. So across the island of Utoya, children are hiding in caves, in cabins, they're in the forest. But again, this island is tiny. How creepy would that be to be hiding in a cave? Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, maybe it's just me, but like, that sounds really scary as well. Well, if you think about it, um, for those of y'all that haven't been to Norway, haven't seen pictures, the coasts and stuff are rocky. It's not, you know, the edge of this island is not a beach or even any kind of sandy. It's cliffs. And some of the cliffs aren't too tall, some of them are, and there's caves in them. But yeah, I mean, there's a couple caves in the island that there's multiple kids hiding in. And there's also multiple caves in the island where kids are getting murdered in. Yeah. So they're trapped. Again, a lot of kids are jumping into the water, to this freezing cold water, to try to swim away because they know hypothermia is a thing. They know that the water could very likely kill them before they actually make it to shore. But in this moment, that's their best bet. Worth the risk, yeah. And they also know that he can. there's nothing to hide you when you're in the water, and he is shooting. So the first shot was fired at about 5.22 in the afternoon, and the emergency medical service were informed about two minutes later. And then about one minute after that, so just three minutes into the shooting, the police in Oslo were informed. Immediately, they were like, we have to get to Utoya as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, due to the bombing earlier and what was going on in the city, they didn't have a helicopter that could get them to the island. So just eight minutes after the shooting started, the anti-terror police in Oslo, which is the emergency response unit there, they were in their vehicles and they were on their way to Utoya. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly law enforcement can mobilize and prepare things. And, like, if you think about it, like, four minutes can sound like a long time in comparison for them to realize they don't have a ride. But when you think about, like, someone had to, like, be like, okay, found out this information. Make the call. Shit, we don't have a helicopter. What do we do? Contact the extra. What were they called again? The anti-terror police? Yeah, Okay, the extra. Got it. <laughs> I don't know. This is a word I thought of. Call the Avengers. Call the Avengers. But, like, that all happened in four minutes, and that's phenomenal. So eight minutes in, they're in their cars. They're, like, speeding down the roads to get to this island. Yeah. No, it's how fast they responded is amazing. Unfortunately, even though Utoya is 24 miles away as the crow flies, there's not a direct route. Of course there's not. So it would take them a while. God, that's the heartbreaking part. Because... They were quick, but they can't change geography. No. But back at Atoya, on the opposite shore, there's campgrounds. And there are people who are seeing what's happening. And they're like, oh, shit. No, we need to save some kids. Yeah. One of the first to get there on the scene was Marcel Gleffe, who was a German resident staying at a campground on the mainland. He instantly recognized the sounds he was hearing as gunshots. 
And so he hopped into a boat and he began throwing life jackets to the kids that were swimming. And he was rescuing as many as he could. He was throwing them life jackets, getting some into the boat. And he made four or five trips and he saved up to 30 people. Oh my god. So he literally is like your real life adventure. Oh, 100%. Oh my god. He's a superhero. Yeah. Two more people that are also in the Avengers, Hege Dahlen and Tordal Hansen, saved over 40 people. Wow. They were this married couple on vacation, camping in the area, and Toril and a neighbor get in a boat and start rescuing people. Hege is helping from land, doing everything they can, and again, they saved over 40 people. Several dozen more were rescued by Kasper Laug, who made three trips in his boat to the island. He was a local resident, and he got a phone call from someone on the island that something terrible was happening and they needed help. And at first he was like, this is a prank, but I'm going to go anyway. And so altogether, more than 150 people who swam away from the island were pulled out of the lake by rescuers by campers not even like this is before the police get there right these are just civilians people married couples on camping trips people just living there that are getting in their boats and saving these children and honestly it's something that when you try to place yourself in that position of what would i do it's honestly a difficult decision to make like not that we're not we don't not that we don't have hearts like we do but Deciding, you know, between placing yourself in harm's way and saving someone is not an easy decision and it never will be. But it just amazes me that when such tragedy happens, so many people come together. And I would like to take that mentality into if you just see something. I mean, it's a measurement that you have to take and it's very personal to everyone. But Because I would like to think if I were faced with this type of situation that I would volunteer to help. And honestly, having other people who are doing it as well does make that easier. It does. Helping solo can be very dangerous. And where you're helping may be calling the police, contacting law enforcement. But in a situation where others are helping too, lending a helping hand can be good as well. Yeah. Just basically, if something's going on, don't ignore the situation. Do something, even if it's just a phone call. Yes. Yeah, I like to think that if I were in this situation, I would be one of the people who leapt into action. And I I think I would. I think you but would. You would totally be a civilian hero. I would just be annoyed the entire time. I mean, everyone's partially <laughs> annoyed in the back of their minds of like, I can't believe this is actually happening. But yes. at the f- and not annoyed at like saving people, just like, Oh my god, this is happening today? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I feel like that's a normal thought to have in the back of your mind. But again, it's in the back. It is The forefront of your mind is like, save the kids, save the people, do the thing. But in the back, it's like, is this really fucking happening? Is this seriously a chapter in my life? Okay, let me just ride this the fuck out. But save children along the way. Exactly. So this shooting lasted for a little over an hour and a half. That is a long time. Police got to the island at about 6.25, and Brevik was apprehended just a few minutes later without incident. So, who is this fucker? Right. 
I've been wondering. He is a 32-year-old Norwegian. He didn't have any previous record. He was active on neo-Nazi and anti-Islamic websites. And after his arrest, a 1,500-page manifesto that he wrote, which, bitch, the longest Harry Potter book is not 1,500 pages. How the fuck do you have enough time to write 1,500 pages of racist garbage? I don't know, but I will say the internet is one of those places that's fantastic for information and communication, but shit, there are some dark stuff out there. Yeah, there are. It creeps me out so much how, yeah, you can find a great recipe for chicken noodle soup and then also a group of Nazis that are active that you could join in conversation with. Like, what the fuck? Didn't didn't we get rid of the Nazis in the 40s? Like, wasn't that the point of, like, you know... World War Two. Yeah, but is anything ever erased? No. God, no. There's always someone who wants to carry on something that should not be carried on. Ugh, people are shit. But also, some people are amazing and take their boats to rescue children from freezing cold water. So which side of that coin are you on? Should be obvious. So his manifesto barred heavily from the manifesto of Ted Kaczynski, of who's also known as the Unabomber. Honestly, lots of future manifestos did. Ugh, I, garbage. I hate it. I hate it. Like, good people have their idols, well, so do bad people. Yeah. Breivik's manifesto was filled with anti-Islamic language and imagery, and it detailed the preparations, the day-to-day preparations that he had made prior to the attacks. He spent several years getting together the funds to finance what he called his martyrdom operation. What? Yeah, he thinks he's a fucking martyr. He's not. He's a fucking garbage human being. He also leased a farmhouse in eastern Norway, which when he purchased several tons of fertilizer just a few weeks before the attacks... Oh, it doesn't look that suspicious. He owns a farm. So that was kind of how he got around that. Because for those of y'all that don't know, after the Oklahoma City bombing, where ammonium nitrate fertilizer was used, it became very regulated around the world. And basically, if you're buying it in mass quantities and you weren't a farmer, you would have the authorities checking in on you. Yeah, you would. But because he owned this farm, or I guess rented this farm... It didn't look suspicious. It's like, oh, got it. He stated that the Labor Party, which is what the youth on the island were associated with. Because the camp was government-based? Yeah, it was basically like a young Republicans or a young Democrats youth camp kind of thing. And he said that the Labor Party failed to prevent the encroachment of cultural Marxism, which is a really just shitty asshole way of saying multiculturalism. Basically wants the whole world to be white and Nazi. Oh, for y'all who couldn't see that, I just rolled my eyes so hard they're stuck. Basically. And he was also scared of the Muslim takeover. Stop it, people, stop it. I know, he is a racist, Islamophobic, he's a fucking monster. His attack on the Labor Party youth camp, it was designed to limit the party's ability to recruit in the future. Because if he killed the future leaders of it, it wouldn't be a thing. Who's going to lead it? Oh my god, dude. 
And he also intended to target the former Labour Prime Minister, who had been on the island just a few hours earlier. Right. So, although Brevik admitted to both the bombing in Oslo and the shootings on Utoya Island, he pleaded not guilty to criminal charges. And in November 2011, court-appointed psychiatrists concluded that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. However, a second court-ordered examination determined that he was sane at the time of the attacks, and the trial could move forward. The ultimate decision of sanity would be left to the trial judges. Because do they not have a jury in Norway? I think they do. I'm not sure, honestly. I don't remember. I mean, I don't... I literally went to law school, but it's fine. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Mine was more in international humanitarian law, not, uh, like civil and criminal law, so I'm not sure. I mean, I was just expecting more from you, considering you went to law school in Norway. Not many people could say that, but Honestly, yeah, no, I would expect more from myself to know about Norwegian law since I went to law school in Norway, but it's fine, it's whatever. Do you want to say... I'm just disappointing myself. Do you want to say one more time that you went to law school in Norway? Law school in Norway? Yeah, there you go. Regardless, the judges would be the ultimate authority on, you know, was he sane during this? Honestly, in my mind, he spent years planning this, so I'm going to go with uh, he knew what he was doing. If you spend that much time planning something out, there's some part of you that should know, right? Even your subconscious. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I am no expert on mental illness. I'll be the first to say that. But the planning... And I'll be the second. <laughs> You'll be the second. But that planning out aspect is generally what gets you. Yeah. I mean, it's the difference in first and second degree murder, so it gets you. Yes, Premeditated or not. Yeah. So in August of 2012, a little over a year after the attacks, the court ruled that Brevik was sane at the time of the attacks, and he received the maximum sentence under Norwegian law of 21 years in prison. Caveat, I will say that sounds very short. However, if at the end of that time... He is seen as a danger to society. Five-year terms can be added indefinitely, which he he got life. Yeah. Like, technically, he got 21 years, and at the, basically, parole board's discretion, five years on top of things, but that man would not be allowed outside of prison. No, not when you attack the government. And children. And children. You don't get out ever when that is your M.O. So, in all... Eight people were killed by the bomb in Oslo, and 69 were killed on the island of Utoya. And at least 319 people were injured both by the bomb, the shootings on the island, and trying to escape. Those numbers are insane. And that is the 2011 Norway attacks, also known in many places as the Utoya Massacre. I I didn't know about any of that. This was one of those, you know how, I mean, unfortunately, major things can happen in the world and you have no idea. This is one of those for me. I had no idea. Yeah. I knew, like, when this happened day of, I mean, I was just out of high school, 18. It was like the summer between high school and college. And I heard of it, but it wasn't something that really stuck with traveling Living in Norway and being able to meet people with these experiences, this is one of the cases we've done that is closest to me. So your classmate was at camp? Yeah. It oh my was God. also something we... that That's about the extent that I know of their experience. Well, because that's because not something they, they want to talk, talk about, about it. it. No. 
I totally yeah. get and respect that. But the fact that you can only imagine and that's scary. Well, and I also imagine because I was at, like I said for law school, this was a political youth camp. And this was people more or less, you know, around my age. Right. I would be on the older end. I was 18 in 2011. I imagine there were probably multiple people that I went to class with that were on the island. That's horrifying. I need more wine. Me too. Okay. Well, let's pour a fresh glass before we get into my case because you're going to want more for mine too. So I guess tell me what case you're doing today for camp murders. Well, I bet you could guess that one of us was going to do this. And when I said I had a close connection to mine, you probably already knew what it was. Oh, God. I am doing the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Yep, there you go. So the sources I used, this is a really long title. 40 years ago, the murders of three Girl Scouts in Oklahoma stunned the nation, created shockwaves still being felt. It's by Tim, (laughs) I know, it's by Tim Stanley, and it's featured in the Tulsa World News. And one thing I want to say about this source, the Tulsa World News spent an entire year creating a six-part narrative about this case, and in that they took an extremely deep dive. The work that they did on this was absolutely incredible. I was so um, sucked into these articles in this case. And um, so I used it heavily for my research. And so that's something I just want to be out there. If you would like to go look this up, please do check out the articles by Tim Stanley, because he just, wow. Uh, The amount of information and insight that was put into this is phenomenal. Can we just give a fucking kudos for all of the hard-ass working journalists out there? Seriously. Like... Honestly, without them, we would have no source of information. We wouldn't know anything. I literally only know what's happening outside of my bubble thanks to journalists. Totally. Thanks to people doing the reporting, the investigative reporting, doing all of that, bringing that information. That's how we know what we know. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, I don't know. I guess my friend's updates would be my news. And that's boring. Well, journalists really put themselves out there and in harm's way. To get us the news and the information. And I think that is yeah. a very respectable job. And people should know that. Absolutely. And I'm just saying, if you have a local newspaper and you like getting your local news, check out their website. See if there's a subscription something. I don't get the newspaper. I don't even know how that would work in an apartment. I guess in my mailbox. I don't know. But I do subscribe online. Because, one, dear God, newspapers are literally burning. Yeah. Like, no one's paying. No, like, none of them have money. They need all the support they can get. Because how many times, I mean, even just Brittany and I have used sources that are like WKBZ News. Or, oh, this is the Houstonian. Or whatever. It's insane. And if you look at other news sources, other ways you get your news. If you watch uh, John Oliver on HBO, so many of his stories all come from local news. Yep. And it's a hugely important industry that is fucking dying. So that being said, if your local newspaper has a 
subscription something online and subscribe. It's like $5 a month. Yeah, it's totally worth it. I subscribe to the Dallas Morning News. And um, I will say, if you live in an apartment, you can absolutely get the newspaper delivered. They have their ways. Like, people have always oh. lived in apartments. Um, so Oh, I, I mean, that's, that's true. I guess it's not a new thing. No, and when I lived in Austin, I had the Statesman delivered to my apartment. It's so cheap. Literally, subscribing to the physical paper is so much cheaper. Like, I'm talking like $20 a year. Uh, it was so oh. insignificant, I didn't even ever notice it. Um, it's so much cheaper than online. But if you don't want to have the paper waste, then do subscribe online. A lot of news is transitioning to online because people aren't reading the physical newspaper as much. But seriously, you guys, we would be so lost without our local news. So support them. Yes. 100% plus one. Plus two, because I agree. Also, I'm going to jump back into my sources. Yes. The second one I used was an article from the Oklahoman. Three Girl Scouts were murdered 30 years ago by Ron Jackson. Also, I know these titles seem to be spoiling bits. They're not. Trust me. The What I told you guys, it was Girl Scout murders. Obviously, you knew they were murders. Um, oh, I was hoping they would be spoilers and there wouldn't be crazier, horrible shit. Oh, no, there's more. But that's not how this no, goes. No, that's not how this goes. And the last one I used was an article from Ranker, 12 Facts About the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders by Kat McAulf, um, which we've used her before. She does a lot of Ranker articles, and I apologize, Kat. I'm sure we've butchered your name multiple times. Mubby. So, Girl Scouts. Every summer, the Girl Scouts of the Tulsa-based Magic Empire Council, they would go to Camp Scott. They would have an annual two-week summer camp, and this was just the norm. Happened every year. The camp was in the woods near Locust Grove, which is a city that's just east of Tulsa, about 50 miles. And for those who don't know, Tulsa is located in the eastern corner of the state of Oklahoma. So, like, that very kind of touching Missouri that corner. Locust Grove was hit by a tornado a few years ago. Well, it was Oklahoma. Of course it was. I mean, you're not wrong. I'm not trying to be lied about that, but literally center of Tornado Alley, they happen. So Camp Scott had been operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928. And for those who don't know, the Girl Scouts were actually founded in 1912 in Savannah, Georgia. And Camp Scott was on a creek site and occupied 410 acres of the area's very densely wooded hill country. So this is a big forest. And the camp was very much the ideal spot to leave civilization behind. So the Girl Scouts used it every single year. Yeah, I mean, if y'all think Oklahoma is just like flat plains, you're like 70% right. But the eastern half is like mountains forest like the Ouachita mountains and all the mountains around tulsa where it goes into arkansas and missouri it's forest so they're called mountains but i swear to god they're literally like a foot over what qualifies them to be a mountain from a hill uh because they're not very tall but you know i mean no. hey we'll claim it as mountains and i will say side note and how this story is very personally connected to me um i was a girl scout in oklahoma But I did go to a different camp because I did these yearly summer camps and I visited Camp Red Rock. 
So I went to camp in the 90s, and I mean, of course we told ghost stories about the murders at Camp Scott, but I can definitely guarantee you that none of us actually understood the horrors of what we were talking about, or what happened. Um, Because otherwise, we would have been a lot more scared at camp. I don't think we even told ghost stories in Boy Scouts, really. Mostly we were just a bunch of, like, horny 13-year-olds. Like, show just like we're gonna be talking about, like... Boobs. Boobs. <laughs> and obviously me being like, mm, love those. Plus one. Can't get enough. You're like, yeah, boobs are great. And actual, they're, like, just, like, sex of fat. I mean, just saying. They're and, and, so cool. And milk like, ducks. Like, about guys? <laughs> that is, you know what? No, boobs are important. I, honestly, today... Love boobs more than I ever have because I'm like, fuck yes. They serve a purpose. I mean, feed your fucking children. Flaunt your damn self. You're a bad bitch. All of you. You know what doesn't serve a purpose? Nipples on men. What are they there for? Why do you have them? Useless. I mean, I, fun fact, read an article about this a couple years ago because that's what I do. (laughs) But it's just because uh, nipples are one of the first things to form in a fetus oh so like before the v or the p you get nipples i think so in my mind that doesn't sound correct because just like physiologically the chromosomes are already there right but yeah everyone has nipples in the same way everyone has like eyelashes or whatever you know what you got nipples you got eyelashes okay but so like i was saying about my personal experience like we would have really been a lot more scared if we had known what actually happened yeah So Camp Red Rock, where I went, it opened up in the 1950s, but it closed in 2010, and it's now, like, this abandoned campground, which is really creepy. Yeah, that's fucking creepy. Well, because, like, even the beds are still in the cabins and tents, and and toilet paper is still on the roll. Like, no, 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 thank you. No. no. Uh, what happened? Why did they apparently have to abandon it all of a sudden? Um, that is a case for another episode. No, I can answer it pretty quickly. They decided to combine a lot of the Girl Scout camps in Oklahoma into one camp. So instead of Girl Scouts in different areas going to a lot of different camps, they had one like main location. Um, and the area where Camp Red Rock was slash is, because it's still literally there, it's just empty, it's privately owned now, so you, you can't, like, go visit it or anything, but whoever owns the land has yet to do anything with it. Oh, that's really boring. So, yeah, I very, very much remember my time at Girl Scout camp. I went for a, a long time. Like, this was my summer activity. This is what I did. I remember doing dishes in, like, the mess hall after dinner and sitting around the the campfires and the Same. the platform tents. So, I don't know. Oh, uh, see, okay. I don't know if y'all had platform tents. So, the, yeah, no, that's that's my one contention. We didn't. We had like tents from a bag, like you pitch your own tent but not an erection. <laughs> Although we were 13, so There were a lot of those too. A little bit. Yeah. But we like I said earlier was a boy scout from the age of at like five to like 16 or whatever. Um, and God, I forget how much camping was a part of your that life. Was our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, I did every summer. I went to like a big camp in, you know, Colorado or Florida or New Mexico or something. And then I think every month 
my Boy Scout troop would do a camping trip on a weekend. So I would camp like fucking like 13 times a year. That's a lot. That's a lot of camping. But we didn't get platform tents. We had to make our own. Okay. So for those who were Girl Scouts in Oklahoma, at least, I don't know if other states had these tents as well, but you're really familiar with a platform tent. But for those who aren't, it was basically this wooden platform that was lifted up off the ground. And it's just a flat, kind of like a a dock, you know, like that type of construction. And you you had stairs going up. And there was a just a tent that was built up. You know, it had the, the cloth, like, tent, and you're open to the wilderness. You're just not on the ground. And there were about four people to a tent. Ugh, bitch, we slept on rocks. <laughs> so inside, there were cots, but you would put your sleeping bag on the cot. <laughs> you got cots? Are you fucking kidding me? No, I mean, whatever. It is what it is. Um... We, we were women. We had to protect our bodies that were getting ready for having babies. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> women are just as strong, if not stronger, than men. So I don't buy any of that shit. I know. You shouldn't buy it because I definitely guarantee we're stronger than y'all in a lot of parts. Yeah, y'all push people out of you. <laughs> I I go to the hospital when I push a pebble out of me. <laughs> it's true. Okay. So the the tents themselves are about 12 by 14 feet. So again, they're really big. Nice. <laughs> the sides are canvas and you can roll them up so you can like open them during the day. <laughs> what the fuck? Okay, so y'all went camping in the Hampton is what I'm learning. We fucking glamped, okay? Yeah. We went glamping. You did. No. They're on the wooden platforms and four cross for sleeping. And at... Did they have a mini fridge? Did they have, like, you know, one of the camps was, like, a disco? One had a bar in it? Yeah, they were absolutely... Each one was equipped with a mini fridge with all the spirits that a 12-year-old needs. Um, (laughs) As as well as (laughs) um, plenty of shampoo and conditioner and toilet paper. Because you bet your ass we had actual facilities. We ain't shitting in the woods. Listen, dig a hole, bury it, whatever. <laughs> but we had toilet. Wow. No, okay. I will say one thing that was interesting about Camp Red Rock, there were some sites that had the tents and some that had like actual cabins. And so the cabins were huge. You could sleep like 20 girls in a cabin because it's just a big house. Who the fuck gets a cabin? Not everyone did. And so it was one of those things that like every year for camp, you're like, oh, fuck, are we in the tents? Are we in the cabin? And if you got the cabin, you were like, yes. If you're in the tents, you were like, oh my god, it's cold, it's dark as fuck, I'm outside. I mean, I get it. Don't even... (laughs) I am so sorry that your (laughs) shitty selection was a platform tent that basically had all the accoutrements of a resort hotel. Alright, well, as soon as I get further into my case, you're not going to have this attitude. Okay. Okay. So all the tents are named after Native American tribes here at Camp Scott. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, that's just a very Oklahoma thing to do, but okay. It is. It would. I mean, that was just they had different units of multiple tents, and it was a different tribe's name. But 1977 was going to be a really different year. So on Sunday, June 12th, the girls, about 130 of them, are all arriving for camp, and they're at the drop-off spot to hop into the buses to head out to Camp Scott. One of these girls was a 10-year-old who was going to camp for the very first time, and her name was Denise Milner. She was one of the only African-American girls in the entire group. 
One of the new camp aides, Michelle Hoffman, who was 15 years old, you know, she had... Oh, I'm sorry. I just forget that the people working in this camp are also children. They are. She had literally just aged out of being able to go to camp herself. So now she's a camp aide. Um, she saw that Denise was having a bit of a difficult time saying bye to her mom. She's like already feeling homesick before she's even left. And so she goes up to her and she's like, hey, you can stick with me. Uh, they're my favorite. So they take the bus ride. Denise is being really quiet. So when they got off the bus at camp, everything was normal. But Denise stuck close by Michelle. And so they both went to the Kiowa tent unit to drop off Denise's things. And Denise was staying in number eight. And when you went to the unit, all of these tents were arranged in a horseshoe shape. And this was the last tent in the row, but it was the one that was closest to the bathroom and the kitchen unit. So it was like the best. Of course, you want the okay. you want the tent by the bathroom. Come on. Uh, yeah. At that time, Denise met her tent mates, Michelle Goose, so different Michelle, and Lori Farmer. They didn't know each other, but they quickly bonded and they were like best friends immediately Ah, oh, i love it i know they're so cute um Lori was eight years old and she had just finished the fourth grade at jinx elementary she was a top student she actually skipped second grade altogether and yeah. despite the fact that she was younger than her classmates she just kept excelling and that was the same with girl scouts Going to summer camp for the first time this summer, she was not worried about being the youngest participant at all. She was just like, no, I got this. Just how little kids are like, hey, you're sleeping next to me. You're my new best friend. And they mean it. Literally wish I could meet people like that today. Same. God. I wish I could just stand next to someone in a bank and be like, ugh, lines right now we're best friends because that's how fucking kids do it and it's because they're not scared of what others think of them don't let don't be scared of what others think of you i know literally be out there honestly if you have to learn anything from a child it's to not give a fuck what others think they're so good at it because it's like they're they're yet to be tainted by society and the shit we actually have to go through so they just don't care about it because they don't know they're supposed to care about it They're like, I'm going to be weird, but so is everyone else. And these people are going to be weird with me. And we're kids and we're best friends. And I'm like, I wish that were me. Um, So Michelle Goose, she was right in the middle of the age group of these three girls. She was nine years old uh, when she went to camp. So we have eight, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a ten-year-old. Yes. So that night, Michelle Hoffman, the camp aide, she was staying in a tent nearby where Denise was. And knowing Denise was a little bit nervous about camp in her first night, she went to check on them. She found the three girls having a fantastic time together. And so she just said goodnight and everything as was as it should be. Oh my God. Can you just stop the story now? Can the story be over? And they had a great time. And that was the story. I freaking wish I could. God fucking damn it. So when all the lights went out, when it was finally like bedtime, they turned all the lights off. Got it. 7.30 p.m. It was pitch black. So it's later than 7.30. 8.30. Got it. This is one of the darkest darks that you can imagine. So when you get outside of a city and turn off literally every light, like not even a flashlight is on, before your eyes adjust to being able to see those stars pitch black but you're in a tent so it stays pitch black you can't see your hand 
in front of your face. It's pitch black. I mean, the only reason you know your eyes are closed are because you can feel your eyelids. Exactly. That is not as profound as I thought it would be, but we're going to roll with it. No, but it's literally that dark. So at around 8 a.m. the next morning on Monday, June 13th, this is just as all the people in Tulsa were getting to work and getting their week started, the first news reports start coming in. There were three Girl Scouts who'd been found dead at Camp Scott. And as the day drug on, more information is trickling in. Three girls had been beaten to death and raped, and the police were currently searching for a killer or killers. Through Scouts officials, families were able to learn that the buses would be bringing their children back to Tulsa. But we still don't know any names, any anything. And so before noon... Oh my god. Yeah, so before noon, all of the parents and the families started gathering at the council building in anticipation. And that's where the bus was going to drop them off. Oh my god, so they're all... All the parents are waiting. And this is how they're going to find out? All the parents are waiting. God. Finally, at about 2.15, the buses started to arrive. When the campers were getting off the buses, they didn't know why. They had no idea why they had come home. To them, camp had been canceled, and they had no reason to know why. I'm glad that that's all they knew. Yeah. So a lot of the campers found out when their parents told them, or maybe didn't, or as the days rolled on. It was later revealed that the three victims were Lori Lee Farmer, Michelle Goose and Doris Denise Milner. If you think back to the girl I was talking about, Michelle Hoffman, she, you know, stayed later that day at the camp, answered phone calls, and, you know, she left. And it was finally when she made it home that she started watching the news. And she saw the picture of Doris. And that's when it clicked. That was Denise. She knew her as Denise because that was her middle name. She had checked on those girls that night and told them goodnight. So this this 15-year-old girl, Michelle Hoffman, her life was shattered at that moment when she realized that connection that she unfortunately had with the situation. She was the last person to see them. Um, she was later diagnosed with severe PTSD, obviously, from what happened. Yeah. Because she was 15 years old. Her goal at that time was to go be a camp aide, then be a counselor, and then um, she wanted to eventually be camp director like that was where she was in life she is a child with i mean the responsibility of an adult for a few days because that's how camp works but she's a kid yeah have you met a 15 year old they are children total they don't know anything they're totally children so the three girls bodies had first been discovered shortly after 6 a.m that monday by counselor carla wilhite Carla was on her way to take a shower when she saw them about 150 feet from their tent near the base of a tree. Their bodies were found bloodied and bound, and Lori and Michelle were zipped inside their sleeping bags uh, to the point to where you didn't realize there were three bodies because Denise was laid on top of hers. So Carla ran to get the camp director and the nurse. She didn't really know what had happened. At that point in time, she saw one body. Yeah, and she's probably a teenager herself. She's a counselor, so yeah, she could be in her, like, late teens, early 20s. So Lori and Michelle were found, like, as soon as everyone arrived, they realized there were two bodies zipped in the sleeping bags. And from the autopsy, Lori and Michelle died from blows to the head, 
Um, Denise was also beaten, but died from strangulation by a ligature. And all three of them had been sexually assaulted. At least two of them raped. So where most of the attack occurred was actually in their tent. And in the tent, blood was everywhere. It was pulled on the floor, it was on the pillows, and it was all over the cots. So one of the biggest questions was, how had no one heard this? Yeah. The majority of the attack, like I said, it happened in the tent. And it was right by other tents in the Kiowa unit. I know, they're a couple feet from each other. I mean, it's it's not even like they're actually spread out. But tents like that are... It's like... What, three feet? Like, enough space to walk between, but that's really it. It may be like two yards, so not a lot. Yeah. And again, they're like canvas tents, but no one heard anything. The families of the victims would obviously be forever changed. Sherry and Charles Farmer, George Ann and Richard Goose, and Betty and Walter Milner. The suspect in this case was not made public until June 23rd, which was 10 days after the attack. During that time, investigators had scourged the woods for clues, followed up leads, and they'd conducted hundreds of interviews, but it it came to nothing. But when it looked like all was absolutely lost, Mays County District Attorney Sid Wise called a news conference, and he told everyone that a suspect was being charged with the murders. Oh. And this suspect was 33-year-old Jean Leroy Hart. Hart was a Locust Grove native, and he was a Cherokee Native American. He was already familiar with authorities. Um, He had been convicted of um, rape and burglary, and he was a two-time prison escapee. So, a little bit concerned about the safety of their prison, because twice. Just a little bit. Twice? And at this time... He'd been on the run for four years since his last escape in, uh, you know, from the Mays County Jail. But he's just living in Locust Grove? I mean, obviously the police found him. You know, he's a suspect and shit. So obviously they found him, so... Oh, no, he hasn't been found yet. He's a suspect because he's an escaped criminal. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. So now, in addition to his previous convictions, which... His sentences totaled 300 plus years. He was facing three first degree murder charges. The DA at the time during this press conference declined to note what connected Hart to the crime. He just said that they had collected evidence. With the conclusion of that news conference, the manhunt started and it would go down as the largest in state history. Seriously. But days of searching turn into weeks, and people were finding nothing. Over time, more and more people didn't believe that he had actually murdered the girls, and they felt that the police were just using him as some type of scapegoat, or that they were targeting him because he was Native American, he was an escaped criminal, and it was like an easy target. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering, is there any reason to think he's still in the area? Like, bitch, if I escape from jail, I'm not, like, you know, getting an apartment in the next town over. I'm going to Kansas City. No, I mean, he had never been seen. This is so. This is all law enforcement saying they have something connecting him, but they can't find him. Yeah, that's a bit suspect. So on, the manhunt had been going on, and at the top of the newspaper's front page, the Tulsa World News, on August 3rd, 1977... There was a letter, an open letter that was addressed to Hart. 
and it urged him to surrender. So they're trying to, like, reach out to him, Shit. find him, be like, dude, like, fucking turn yourself in. Like, we know you, we know yeah. you did it. Come talk to us and you'll get X, Y, Z or whatever. And I think the Tulsa world circulates like a million people or so. That's... It's a big one. But this came to nothing. No responses. No leads. Nothing. So on April 6, 1978, 10 months after the murders, the manhunt that had been consuming Oklahoma residents this entire time ended at a small tar paper and wood shack in the Cookson Hills of eastern Cherokee County, where Hart was in the store, identified, the authorities were called, they showed up and arrested him. As you can imagine, Hart's trial was the most anticipated trial in state history, probably oh, yeah. probably up until Timothy McVeigh in the 90s. Yeah. So the capital murder trial of Jean Leroy Hart, who had pleaded not guilty in the deaths of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose, would be held in the third floor courtroom of the Mays County Courthouse in Pryor, Oklahoma, with Judge William J. Whistler presiding. So out of Locust Grove into Pryor, which was, you know, a few miles away, but... Yeah, I know, but Pryor is a town of like a thousand? It's tiny. Well, that's where they got their jury from, and not in Locust Grove. Because of everything that had been going on, they couldn't have anyone from there. No, and that makes sense. And Locust Grove is also a small town, I guess. I guess, honestly, it's in the area where everything's a small town. Yeah, it is. S.M. Buddy Fallis, who was Tulsa County District Attorney, was heading the prosecution team. That's a pretty shitty name. Yeah, but he was a widely respected veteran prosecutor, and he definitely made a name for himself prosecuting big-time Tulsa crime figures. And opposite him, leading the defense team, was attorney Garvin Isaacs from Oklahoma City. So Isaacs was relatively unknown. Um, He was a former Oklahoma County public defender who now had a private practice. When Hart met Isaacs, he immediately told him that he did not kill the girls, and Isaacs believed him, as did a growing number of people in the community. So on October 5th, 21 months since the murders, the trial finally began. This trial was obviously a media sensation, and each day, up to two hours before the trial started, spectators would start lining up outside the courthouse. Some of them would get in, most of them wouldn't. There was always a crowd there. The jury was made up of six men and six women, and they were from Pryor or Ader, Um, Like I said, no one from Locust Grove. And for the duration of the trial, they were sequestered at a prior hotel. So. Oh my God. This was one of those where they can't even go home. That sounds awful. But also I cannot imagine a worse place to be sequestered than prior. Maybe Guymon. I mean. But Guymon is like four times the size of prior. But like they live in prior. But still, they don't want to be at this hotel. I mean, honestly, is it a hotel? Is it a motel? Did the sheets smell like sin? <laughs> Probably. It's where all the people who are having affairs go. And yeah. unfortunately, the jurors of this trial. So during the trial, the state's case hinged on two basic pieces of evidence. Biological, including hair and sperm samples found on the girls, 
which expert witness testimony linked to Hart, and items that could put Hart at or near the scene of the crime. Okay. So that's actually evidence. Okay. Um, these included a pair of sunglasses alleged to have been stolen from a camp scout counselor, a roll of tape that matched tape found at the death scene, and some photos linked to Hark, who'd once worked in a prison photo lab. And these items had been discovered in a cave about three miles from Camp Scott. So it's like this, okay. this weird assortment of shit in a cave. So they find sunglasses that belong to a camp counselor, a roll of tape, and rando photos. Why is it not that camp counselor? Um, I mean, that question is as good as any. Yeah, that's some shit. Well, the prosecution admitted that they did not have a smoking gun. They said that if, if Hart had been at the scene of the crime, he left no fingerprints. And although um, there was biological evidence reportedly pointing to Hart, it was not conclusive. Um, because, again, this was the 70s and DNA testing was not going to be introduced until the 80s. Oh, fuck, I forgot it was the 70s. So they're probably looking at, like, well, under a microscope, your hair looks the same as this hair. And you're like, well, that's actually two different samples of one of them sheep's hair and one of them is actually carpet fiber. Literally, though, it's literally like, oh, we found a black hair. Your hair's black. Gonna link it to you. Fucking bullshit. So the defense's counter strategy was basically to put the investigation itself on trial and noting that authorities had their eye on Hart from the very beginning, basically saying he was an easy target that they could pin the crime on. Like, yeah, they wanted to find someone. They found him. They knew he had escaped. They were like, he's raped some people. These girls were raped. He did it. Yeah, I mean, he's not a good person, but to hinge the entire murder case on that is a lot. It is. So, defendant um, lawyer Isaacs claimed that the pieces of evidence recovered at the cave and the cabin had been planted. To make matters worse, Isaacs added, in keying on heart, authorities had ignored more likely candidates. Most namely, convicted rapist Bill Stevens, who at this point in time was now serving time in in a Kansas prison. So, like, he had been loose at the time of the crimes, but now he was in jail in Kansas. Uh So he was like, you guys aren't even paying attention to who could have really done this. And this dude's already in jail. Yeah. Um, Stevens was a stronger candidate. Isaac said he produced witness testimony that claimed Stevens was someone they should have actually been looking at. Watching the trial was really excruciating for the families of the victims. Not just because this was the first time they were hearing a lot of the graphic details, um, but because it they said it was like watching a movie and everyone was performing. And so there would be frequent outbursts by the prosecution or the defense or even the judge. But throughout all of this, Hart remained completely silent. So it's like, to them, it's this performance. Yeah. That's, that's being put on, and they're like, but our fucking children. They're seeing these outbursts at these timed moments or whatever. But they're like, okay, but our fucking girls are dead. Yeah. And Hart did eventually give one interview to the news. 
And in it, you know, obviously the goal was to make him seem innocent. And he, he had actually cleaned up a lot since the time that he was arrested until he was put on trial. And he looked like, like a professor. I mean, he was like in a suit. He was very well put together. He did not look like someone who would have done this. Mind you, he's someone who's a jail escapee. So. I know he escaped jail and what is a convicted rapist. To me, I mean, the guy you mentioned earlier seems like a likely suspect. I would wonder, like, whether any male counselors at this camp or to me, he just does not seem like the most likely suspect or realistically even the most convenient. I actually don't think they have male counselors at Girl Scout camp. Oh, do they not? I don't quote me on this, but I don't think so. Oh, pretty sure we had female counselors at Boy Scout camp, but also the fucking sexist patriarchy makes sense. It does. So outside of the court, the town was actually raising money for Hart's defense. Because at this point, almost no one believed that he was guilty. I mean, yeah, there's no part of me that believes he's guilty at this point. Well, after deliberations and closing statements, the jury was expected to take multiple days to deliberate. But they came back with a decision after only six and a half hours. That is quick. He was found not guilty. Okay. Gene Leroy Hart, as you know, he was not going free. He was just not being convicted of this. But he did have more than 300 years to serve for his previous convictions. So he did go back to prison. He had been caught. But of this crime, he was found not guilty. Yeah. There was no follow-up investigation because authorities and the families believed that Hart was guilty. And so it all just kind of ended. Are you kidding me? Nope, that was it. They just stopped. They feel like they had their guy. He got not guilty, but they were like, oh, one day we'll get ya. Yeah. They truly believed that they had the correct person and they weren't budging from that. Um, Fuck all of that. So literally that's why the case to this day is still technically unsolved. But as far as authorities are concerned, it's solved. Are you shitting me? I wish. They're just, they're not. Because first off, the evidence they had, circumstantial at best. They seriously stopped investigating. They have their entire blinders set that it's this guy that, first of all, the court already found him not guilty. I'm not 100,000% sure on how the Fifth Amendment works, but I'm pretty sure unless they bring some better fucking evidence that apparently they're not looking for, it's not like they can do anything. No, they can't. And that's why they didn't. And they're just, I don't know if that's the Fifth Amendment, actually, but... um. Whatever amendment. It's in the Bill of Rights. Just look at it. <laughs> They're just done. Um, and on June 4th, so two months after the verdict, and almost two years to the day of the murders, Gene Hart was dead. Oh. He had collapsed after exercising and had a probable heart attack and died. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, even though many people suspected foul play, it was investigated and nothing ever surfaced. I mean, he was a fucking rapist. But also, he was still a fucking human being, and apparently the fucking target of the police, so, okay. But he had a heart attack and died. Yeah. Camp Scott closed for good the day after the murders, and it never reopened. And the farmers and the Milners, they 
they weren't done after this first trial. So these families weren't ready to, like, I don't know, throw in the towel. They filed a civil lawsuit against the Magic Council, which was the leaders of the Girl Scouts, claiming that its negligence was partially responsible for the deaths of their daughters. In 1985, the case was brought to trial with the plaintiffs seeking a total judgment of $5 million. Testimony from former campers and counselors included claims of thefts and strange happenings that happened at the camp in days leading up to when all the girls were going to arrive. Namely, two months prior, a training session was held for, like, the counselors at Camp Scott. However, the weekend ended prematurely when one of the counselors' cabins was ransacked and a really disturbing note was discovered in an empty box of donuts. The note was handwritten and it warned that we're on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Someone had also created an effigy of a man, which they hung from a tree by its neck. Okay, what the fuck? So, while both the note and the effigy were pretty upsetting, the letter also mentioned Martians. So, the camp administrators dismissed the entire series of events as a really tasteless prank. I mean... That's really specific, though. Like, we're going to murder three girls in camp or in tent one, and theirs is the, you know, first tent by the bathroom, so even if it isn't tent one, you know, someone could think it is or whatever. Yeah, I know. But, you know, even with the mean, like, and also after that, we're going to go to Mars. Like, deuces, bitch. Um, I would still take that shit seriously. Also, they were ransacked. I would take that seriously without a note. I know. And in addition to that, on the night of the actual murders, apparently screams were heard in the night, and there had been some sightings of strange men. Okay, that sounds pretty evident. Well, in the end, the jury ruled in favor of the council, and two years later, the decision was upheld in a state appeals court. So, it was nothing. I mean... I kind of agree with it, because what was the camp supposed to do? Again, it's not really evidence. It's circumstantial. Exactly. And you can't just like, okay, well, you know what? We're going to build a big-ass fence around the fe- around the camp. Like, that's kind of why you go camping, is I to mean, so my... get away from the fences, get into the open, whatever the I fuck. I mean, you can still build a fence far out and someone can climb over. Like, that's not stopping someone who wants well, to really get in. I mean, exactly. That's what was the council supposed to do? You know, you wanted them to protect the girls. And yes, the girls should have been protected. But I don't really see how. Yeah. Well, and all of this evidence was circumstantial for the most part. And in the 30 years at this point since, so in the 90s or early 2000s, A number of DNA tests have been conducted on biological evidence from the crime scene. Because like I said, they had some. Yeah. And to date, due unfortunately largely to the degraded state of the evidence, authorities say nothing conclusive has ever come from them. But there was one test that gave reason to pause. In 1989, of five aspects of DNA tested from the scene... Three of them reportedly matched the body fluids taken from Hart. 
Oh. Only one in 7,700 Native Americans would match the samples of fluids as hearts did, but because only three of the five aspects match, the results were officially deemed inconclusive. Well, to be fair, one in 7,000 people isn't a ton, but that that is definitely suspicious. Because that is definitely pointed. It is, and it's inconclusive, and I don't know what these aspects were. It's one of the things that just adds to the question of, was Hart really involved or not? Like, was he just such a good actor through everything that happened that he literally had everyone believing he didn't do it? Or did he really not do it? And I don't know, it happened to be someone else who I don't know, stole his pen. I literally have no idea, but... Yeah, I mean, we have seen cases of murderers and rapists who are great actors who get away with shit. And we've also seen cases of trace DNA evidence actually linking to someone. So I don't... Fuck, I thought I, knew, I, thought I was pretty convinced about halfway through that it was not him. I don't know. Yeah, and that's the case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And like I said, to this day, still technically unsolved even though in the state's books it's uh they're they're done they've solved it they believe Hart did it and he's dead and so close case i think that's one of the worst parts is that whether or not it is him they're not looking for anyone else and there have been a couple of times when the case has been attempted to be reopened but none of them successful okay well post-mortem uh post-mortem but let me tell you, I, uh, you know, when we started this episode, I think we talked about how much, like, damn, it would be great to, like, go camping again. I miss it. My childhood. Yeah, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. I'm, I don't, I'll say, in, you know, behind four walls. I'm going to stay indoors for the time being. I'm going to stay indoors forever. <laughs> Except I won't because the bravest fucking thing we can do is live our fucking lives. That's true. But that doesn't mean we have to go camping. That is also true. But yes, postmortem. Well, this one's challenging because both of our cases are really intense and really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and both of ours have a personal connection, which I think is something we can't really describe uh, through like voice and through like the podcast, if that makes sense. But I'm just going to go as far as just thinking of the uh, facts of the cases and and taking out the emotion a little bit. I think because yours did involve so many victims, the fact that your case involved so many victims and that the perpetrator was disguising himself as a police officer, as law enforcement, and that he tricked kids into trusting him, like that's some dirty shit that I think makes yours up the intensity and like the waters and like the people rescuing it just it was such this mass thing it it was the full camp it wasn't three girls who were stolen in the night which i will say lends to mine being more intense and the fact that that's really fucking creepy and no one heard it but i do think because of sheer victim count and like the horror and how long this went on yeah i think yours is more intense Okay, I think yours was very brutal, and it had so much detail about what happened to the victims, and 
I mean, the fact they were so young. I mean, granted, in my case, I don't know how young the youngest victim was. I know the youngest survivor was 10, so I would imagine the youngest victim is probably 10 or 11, honestly. But your case is almost more familiar. Yeah. It almost seems like it's in a more familiar setting in a tent I could have stayed in, at a campground I could have been at. And again, like you mentioned at the beginning, we have personal connection to these cases. And I think that's most of this is that, Mm -hmm. you know, shit, you substitute Camp Scott for Camp George Thomas, and I was fucking there. I mean, you substitute Camp Scott for Camp Red Rock, and I was literally there. I stayed in these yeah. platform tents. It, And I think, honestly, through my research, that was one of the most horrifying parts, is that everything I read about, like, arriving at camp and putting yourself up at the tent and having fun with your tent mates, I did that. I did that. That was yeah. me. And just, my God, I am so glad I didn't realize the horrors of this when I was at camp. Because like I said... We did yeah. talk about it. We, we did talk about the ghost stories of the girls who were murdered. But I think in all of our minds, it wasn't real. But it was. Yeah. I mean, it was something that you're like, oh, these are the ghost stories. Like, literally, by nature, they're ghost stories. They're not real, whatever. Yeah. I'm really glad you didn't realize that at the Me time. Me too. I will say, I think this one, I think my case, I agree with you in the end. Because of just the sheer amount of victims, the terror of being fucking trapped on an island, no place to go, the accounts of the survivors who lived through every fucking second of it, and just the fact that I think there are few moments in any country that literally, like, stop the clock, and I think this was one of them. Yeah. And, like, yes, this one shifted a state that, you know, we grew up in forever, I really do think, um, I mean, I'm going to agree with you because of the number of victims and the fact that they were trying to hide and there was just this amount of terror and horror and the fact that this douchebag was pretending to be a cop and tricking kids like, no, that there is so much of that is so messed up. So messed up. I agree. He was a dick. I will pick our topic next week. Great, because I picked our topic and it went... And regret it? We were like, let's pick the fucking worst cases we can imagine. Basically. And you already said earlier that whoever picks the next episode is picking a survivor one, so thank you. I mean, that's what I say now. We'll see what happens next week. Okay, I mean, you kind of backed yourself into a corner, but like, whatever, <laughs> I guess. Okay. But thank y'all so, so much for tuning in, for listening to this episode Please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Give us those five stars. Let us know what you love. Uh, That really helps us move up in the rankings and just helps more people find blood and wine. Yes, definitely uh, let us know what you think. And also be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Send us messages. Talk to us. Um, let us know what you like. Yes. Agreed. (laughs) Plus one. You know what? Plus two. Plus two, because both of us feel that way. Yes, we do. But again, 
Thank y'all so, so much. Cannot thank y'all enough, so we're gonna do it twice, three times. Who the fuck knows? We're literally just gonna repeatedly say thank you for the next two minutes, because we just have to, like, put those positive vibes out there after this episode. I'm just saying. I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just kidding. That sounds like I'm a serial (laughs) killer, and I'm not. But um, thank y'all so much for tuning in. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.